Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, worship team. That's always, uh, it's always a blessing, but oh, just to worship Christ and to focus our eyes on Him, what a, what a way to prepare our hearts to hear the Word. So thank you so much for blessing us. And good morning to you, church. Good morning. I know a lot of them, a lot of you are, are at home watching online, but we're grateful that we can meet at least one last time before we go back into another period of, um, of lockdown. Um, This morning we're examining a topic which has been greatly studied throughout the history of the church. And it's a topic that I think is very relevant to us as we consider the times that we're living in today. The topic is this, the sovereignty of God over the evil of man. The sovereignty of God, the control of God over the evil of man. Of man, You know, uh, whenever something bad happens, you'll often hear people comfort each other, and what do they say? They say, don't worry, everything happens for a reason. Have you heard that before? Yeah, of course we have. Everything happens for a reason. And what do they mean by saying this? They mean, surely something good must come of this. Right? This bad thing that's happened to you, there must be some good reason why. It's a kind of wishful, it's a kind of um, wishful hoping, isn't it? It's a hope. That a belief that things will somehow or another, they're going to work out. Things are going to work out. And I want to be sensitive to our friends who, who don't believe in God. Because when they say this, they are well-meaning, aren't they? It's, it's a statement of hope. It's a belief that, you know, things are going to work out. And, but, but if we're honest, there's, there's really no basis for that statement. If you don't believe in God, there's no ba- it's, it's, it's a hopeful statement. It's a belief in fate or chance or luck. But, but even though I say all that, I want to tell you that our friends are not wrong for believing that everything including evil, happens for a reason. Including evil. For the Bible teaches us that God is indeed sovereign over the evil of man. So before we dive in, I just want you to appreciate, I've been spending the last uh, few weeks um, drowned in church history and different views on this topic. This is something, like I said, has been, that's been studied for centuries. I just want you to appreciate why theologians have wrestled with this problem. Why have they spent so much time wrestling with the problem of evil and God? Evil and God. And I want you to see their, the issue, okay, their reasoning. Just follow this. If God created everything, okay, which we believe, Right? We believe God created everything. And if, if God is sovereign over everything, right, He's in full control of everything, which we also believe, 
then if evil exists in our world, which it does, does that make God the author of evil? Do you see the dilemma? Right? You see the right? So did God create evil? And this is not a light question because it has huge implications for us, doesn't it, church? Why? Because how can any of us be, be held guilty for our sins? How can we be held accountable for something that is outside our control? Right? If, if evil is in the full control of God. So that's, that's the dilemma. And so we need to start our, this morning's um, message by, by understanding what evil is. And I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. This is a very, very um, existential kind of question. What is evil? And I think the most helpful way to understand it is to understand what it is not. Okay, have I lost you yet? <laughs> what it is not. Because you see, church... Evil is not a created thing. It's not a thing that God created. In fact, it is the absence of something God created, which is what? Good. Yeah. The absence of good. That's what evil is. The absence of good. You see, in the beginning of, of the book of Genesis, we read, God created the universe. He created Adam and Eve. He created everything that fills our world. And after he was done, what does he say? It was all good. It was very good. And so here's, here's what the Bible is telling us. Since everything God created was good, evil could not have been created by God. Why? Because by definition, evil is the absence of good. Right? The lack of of good, the privation of good. So I want to give you an analogy that I found helpful as I was reading this. What is darkness? Like, how, how do we define darkness? It's the absence of light, yeah. What about cold? As real as it is to feel cold on a winter's day, what is cold? How do we define cold? It's the absence or the lack of heat. So in a similar way, evil is the absence of good. And so first and foremost, church, we must understand this, that God did not create evil. Far be it from God to be the author of evil. I want to show you a few verses just to support that. One from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 5 and verse 4. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Evil does not dwell with God. A New Testament passage, James chapter 1, look what he says in, from verse 13. He, he says, let no one say when he's tempted to do sin or tempted to do evil, let no one say they're being tempted by God. Why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Which means that when we do evil or when we sin, we cannot say God is forcing us to do it because he doesn't tempt people to do evil. That's not who he is. He can't. 
And then in verse 14 it says, so James then tells us, so then why do people do evil? He gives us the answer in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. His own desires. So what I'm trying to tell you is that when Adam and Eve, and even Satan, when they were given free will, they were given something that was good by God. It was good. The freedom to choose to trust and to obey Him and to have life. That's a good thing God gave them. But what God meant for good, they meant for what? For evil. For evil. Using their free will to reject, to rebel and to choose sin and death over life, over a life under God. Well, thankfully, the story doesn't end there, does it, in Genesis chapter 3? Otherwise, our Bible would be much shorter than this. <laughs> thankfully, it doesn't end there because God promises to send a Savior. Even in Genesis chapter 3, He promises He's going to send a Savior to this world, the evil, broken world that we live in, and later on in Genesis, we learn that that Savior is going to come through the line of what? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. To bless all the peoples of the earth with eternal good. So that's my introduction. That gives you a bit of the background and the context for the verse we're going to look at this morning. The key text, which is Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. If you can turn there in your Bibles... Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. There's nothing like looking in, in your own Bible as we, as we dig into this. And in this passage, Moses, who's the author, is going to give you and I a sneak peek of a conversation we have no business hearing. We're going to be allowed to listen in on a conversation between one particular son of Israel, one person in that line, that, that, that family of Israel through whom the Savior is going to come. His name is Joseph. A conversation between Joseph and his brothers. That's what we're looking at this, this morning after their father Jacob had died. And this verse, this verse we're looking at explodes with the sovereignty of God over evil. Um, I'm going to read it for you right now. Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph says, as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Can I just pray again before we begin? Father, I thank you that there are so many, um, even though there are so many questions we have, there are so many things that we don't fully know or understand. I thank you that we have a basis, we have a foundation that we can come back to and we can know the truth. This, this, this word is reliable. It is, it, is, it is from your mouth. And so we can trust it because we know you don't lie. And Lord, as we study this, issue. And I know that each one of us, we have read much of the evil that happened in the Bible. We see evil every day when we, when we turn on the news. We even know the evil that's been done against us in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that we would, we would understand that nothing, including evil, 
is outside your control. Nothing. Give us confidence and faith and assurance in that truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, God. Aren't you glad for God's word? That we don't have to feel around to try to find truth that it's given to us? All right, let's, let, let, let me give you a little bit of background as we, as, we study, as we understand this verse. So Joseph was 17 years of age. He was a teenager. He was a teenager when we were introduced to him in Genesis 37. Turn back to Genesis 37 if you don't mind. Um, this morning, to understand this, this one verse at the end of Genesis, we need to get some of this context. It is so rich with meaning, and I don't want you to miss out. So, so bear with me as we navigate a few passages in Genesis. Um, so if you remember, he was the first son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. The first son of Rachel. And so he was loved by his father more than any of his brothers. And that's not right. Right? It's not right to have favoritism in the family because it divides, and that's exactly what it did. It divided the family, and every time Joseph wore that robe, you know the robe of many colors, every time he wore that, that robe which was gifted to him by, by his father, his brothers were reminded of the pain of his, their father's favoritism. They were reminded of the pain, and they hated Joseph. They hated him. It says in chapter 37, they hated him to the point that they could not even speak peacefully with him. Just picture the, the degree of hate. You can't, can't even talk to him. That's how much they hated him. Well, things only get worse. As God, you remember, most of you remember the story, as God gives Joseph dreams. And these dreams, I mean... In one of the dreams, his 11 brothers are gathered around him, and what do they do? They, they're bowing down to him as their ruler. So you can imagine, this, this only made the brothers hate him all the more. Hate him all the more. And their anger and their jealousy of Joseph was so great, here's what happens. Jacob sends Joseph on a 65-mile on a journey to go and check on his brothers. He's far away from the watchful eye and the protection of his father. And so the brothers saw an opportunity. They saw an opportunity. I'm reading from verse 18. Look at Genesis 37 and verse 18. This is what the brothers do. They saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Of his dreams. You see, church, Joseph's brothers meant evil against him. Evil. This is the attention of their hearts. Don't you see that? They are planning to kill their own brother. Don't let the gravity of that pass you by. Right? That word in verse 18, conspired, you know what it means to conspire? It means to plan something secretly together. Why am I saying? It wasn't an accident that they killed Joseph. This was premeditated. This was willful. 
they devised a plan to murder their teenage brother. He was 17 years of age. And then to bury the evidence, right? They were burying the evidence in a pit. And then to fabricate a lie so that they could avoid justice. All of this they did to silence him and his dreams. To silence him. Evil. Well, as the story continues, the eldest Reuben convinces his brothers not to shed Joseph's blood. Let's just throw him into the pit. Just throw him in the pit. Let him die of natural causes. Reuben uh, intended to rescue him later, but you have to understand, they were out in the middle of the wilderness. They were in the wilderness. A pit like this, I had to um, do some study to understand this, but these pits were like cisterns. A cistern is narrow at the top, and then it kind of becomes wide at the bottom. And the walls of this cistern would have been so slippery, it would have been impossible for anyone to climb out of a cistern. Verse 24, look at verse 24. Moses tells us that the pit was empty, which means there was no food in there. There wasn't any food in there. And he even specifies what in verse 24? There was no, what else? Water. There was no water in it. So what is he saying? He's saying it would be only a matter of days before Joseph dehydrated and starved to death alone in that pit. Now, if you still don't see the evil of these brothers, I want want you to look at verse 25. What did they do after throwing their own brother into a pit? What does it say? They sat down to eat. They had a meal. Are you picturing this? You just threw your brother into this pit, and now you're sitting down here and enjoying a meal meal. You know, later on in in the story in Acts, in in Genesis 42 verse 21, the brothers, when they were reflecting on this moment, you know what they admitted? They saw the distress of Joseph's soul. They saw him down there. They, They could see him lying at the bottom of the pit. While they were eating, they could hear him begging for for his life. Just picture this. You're eating food, but you can hear him crying and begging for his life. Perhaps they even heard him trying in vain to to climb up the walls so that he could survive. But they did not listen because their hardened hearts meant evil against Joseph. They meant evil against him. I hope you see that. And evil is not far from greed, is it? It's not far from greed. And so as they sat there eating, lo and behold, what enters their hearts? Greed. Look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. See what Judah says. Judah is one of the brothers. Look what he says. What profit is it if we kill our brother? What profit do we make for killing him? Verse 27, come, let us sell him. Let us sell him. What is it called when you sell a fellow human being? What is it called? Slavery. This is slave trade. This is what today we call it human trafficking. That's what they're doing. And for what? Verse 28, 20 shekels of silver. In Leviticus, this is the valuation for a male teenage slave. It's 20 shekels 
of silver. This is what they did. And so Joseph was sold and brought to Egypt while the brothers took the money. And then look at what they did. They returned home and they looked their father Jacob in the face and they lied to him. And look at this lie. They told him that Joseph had been torn to pieces by a fierce animal. Now, some of you are not fathers, but many of you are. Many of you watching from home as well. Can you imagine a father hearing this news? That your son has been torn to pieces, decapitated by an animal? This lie threw Jacob into a deep depression. He was traumatized by the thought of his beloved son being ripped piece by piece by an animal. He was so depressed, he mourned day and night, and in verse 35 it says, refusing to be comforted. He refused to be comforted. Well, the evil against Joseph um, that began with his brothers, evil only continued to follow him. As he went to Egypt, um, I won't go into too many details, but you remember the story. Potiphar's wife frames him, for, even though he was innocent, frames him and has him thrown in prison. While in prison, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker, only to be forgotten when those dreams were fulfilled. So Joseph is left. I just want you to step into Joseph's shoes for a minute, okay? Joseph is left to languish in a prison two whole years for a crime he did not commit. Is that injustice or what? It's injustice. Can you imagine how he must have felt? I just want you to pause for a moment because many of you have experienced evil in your life. Many of you have experienced or seen evil on the news. What would it have been like to face this? The evil that he has faced in his short life. He's, he's in his 20s. He's in his 20s. In his short life, the evil he has faced. His loved ones have hurt him and betrayed him. The injustice that put him in prison. The friends he met there who have forgotten him since they got out. The questions and doubts that would have troubled his mind, right? Like, I mean, God, you gave me this dream. What happened to the dream? While he was in prison, you see how much it would have disturbed him to consider, what am I doing here? Like, what did I do to deserve this evil? What did I do? And so, church, this is the first part of our text this morning. This is why Joseph says to his brothers, as for you... You meant evil against me. Indeed, they did. Evil upon evil upon evil. And yet, God, um, thanks be to God, God had not forgotten Joseph. Isn't that amazing? While he was in prison, facing all that injustice, God had not forgotten him. Just like he doesn't forget us. Because everything that happened to Joseph, all the evil that people intended against him, all of it happened for a reason. It happened for a reason. 
Which brings us to the second part of our text, Genesis 50, verse 20. What does Joseph say? say, You meant it for evil, but what? But God, God meant it for good. Now, I don't want you to just gloss over this because what is Joseph saying? He's saying the very evil, this is the evil, the very evil that you intended against me, God intended that evil for good. That's what he's saying. Do you see the gravity? That evil that you did against me willfully, God intended the same evil for my good. For good. I want to show you a passage in Ephesians chapter 1. It'll come up on the screen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And there's there's this incredible passage where Paul tells us something about God that is so relevant to our text this morning. He says, God works All things according to what? The counsel of His will. His will. God, does it say God works some things? No, it says God works all things according to His will. And what is the outcome? Verse 12, what is the outcome of everything that God is willing? It's to the praise of His glory. That's the reason. The reason for it all is to the praise of His glory. What am I saying, church? I'm saying that the things that happen to you, you're looking back at your life and you're thinking of the good things that happened to you. And even I want you to think of the bad things that happened to you. The evil things, the suffering, the things that you don't want to even remember. None of it happened according to fate. None of it happened according to luck. Or chance. You need to understand everything that happens happens according to the counsel of God's will. That's what the Bible teaches. Everything. And there's a reason for it. There's a reason. It's not just mere chance or dumb luck. It's not that. It's, there's a reason for it. The praise of His glory. For His glory. Does that not comfort you? Just think about that for your life. Does that not comfort you to realize everything you've gone through is for a reason? I want you to see the implications of this. That means the evil that Joseph's brothers did against Joseph, that evil, it didn't surprise God. It didn't surprise him. It was in his plan. (laughs) He's all-knowing. He knew. The, the, the evil that Joseph faced was not beyond God's power to stop. Sometimes we think, okay, if evil exists, does that mean God's not powerful enough to stop it? No! He is powerful. He's all-powerful. He could have stopped it. So then, church, you have to know something, that there is nothing that exists or has existed, there is nothing that, has, that occurs or has occurred or will ever occur that is not under the sovereign control of God. Nothing. Nothing. The, even the most insignificant things in your life, even the things that you think, how could this ever mean anything for good? No, no, no. It's all according to the will of God, to the counsel of His will. And so, when the time was right, returning to Joseph, when the time was right, this sovereign God moved the pieces of history. He moved them around as He pleased He gave Pharaoh a set of dreams which awoke 
the, the, the cupbearer out of his forgetfulness and amnesia so that Joseph now finds himself before the most powerful king on the face of the earth at that time. Egypt was the world's superpower. And God gives Joseph the precise interpretation as to what God was about to do, what God was about to do. Not what nature was going to do, what God was going to do, a severe famine that was going to consume the land. I want you to realize something even in this. I'm not saying that God is just sovereign over human affairs, right? Over what we do, the evil that we do. Do you know that God is sovereign over nature? He's sovereign over nature. Look at this beautiful passage, Psalm. In Psalm 105, the psalmist tell, tells us, referring back to, to this account, to Genesis, when God summoned a famine on the land. What does it mean to summon? It means to call something, right? It was God who called the famine on the land of Egypt. It was God who broke all the supply of bread. It was God, the next verse, it was God who sent a man ahead of the Israelites, Joseph, sold as a slave. God did that. Pharaoh is so amazed by, by Joseph's wisdom, by his discernment. He's so pleased that he makes Joseph. Now, now don't, don't miss the gravity of this. This is Egypt, okay? He makes Joseph, who is a Hebrew prisoner, right, from a family of shepherds, which was an abomination to the Egyptians. I don't know why. I love sheep, but they don't, apparently. But Joseph is put in command of the entire land of Egypt. Just think about that. To store up the grain during good years so that the land wouldn't perish during the famine. He is so powerful that he is second only to Pharaoh, who was the most powerful man in the world, in the known world. That's how high God raised him up. Does this not amaze you, church? Does this not amaze you? It's what theologians call, there's, there's a term in theology called the providence of God. Have you heard that word? Providence? What it means is that God sees beforehand. And not just that, He has a plan for everything. He has a purpose for everything. He governs everything. And He provides for us all so that everything works together to achieve His will. That's what providence is. Everything that happens to you works together to achieve the will of God. And so I want you to remember, when we began, I told you about the fall of Adam and Eve, right? Into sin, back in Genesis 3. After they fell, I told you that God said He was going to bring a Savior into the world, right? And we learned later on in the book of Genesis that that Savior was going to come through what? The nation of Israel. But I want to tell you, this nation of Israel, do you know how big they were at this time, at the time of the famine? They were but 70 people. Sound like a nation to you? Big, strong nation? No, that's barely a family, right? That's just a big family. This nation of Israel was never so vulnerable as they were right now at this time. Their very survival was at stake. Just picture this. The whole world is dying of starvation, if they don't have access to the grain of Egypt, they too would have died. 
And what would have happened? The story of God's salvation would have come to an abrupt and tragic end. But Joseph understands this. He understands the providence of God. And look what he says. Turn to Genesis 45. Genesis 45 and verse 5. I need you to see this. This is when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, okay? When he reveals himself to his brothers for the first time. Look at what he says, okay? And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Like, that takes a lot, right, to be able to say that? All the evil Joseph's faced because of the brothers? And yet, what does he say? Don't be distressed. They were distressed. Of course they were distressed. They were angry with themselves. And Joseph is telling them, look beyond your evil. Look beyond the sins you committed and see the grace of God. That's what he's saying. Verse 5, for God sent me before you to do what? To do what? To preserve life. Do you see it, verse 5? To preserve life. Now, now we need to cover one verse here that that brings it all together. Look at verse 8. Skip down to verse 8. And you might have to take a double take as you read that because it's like, is that what it says? Verse 8. So it was not you, the brothers, who sent me here, but who? but God. Now, (laughs) I hope you caught that because you might have read that and thought, hang on, that's a mistake, right? That must be a mistake because we just read the whole account. How did Joseph get to Egypt? His brothers sold him as a slave. That's how he got there. But what is Joseph telling us? What actually happened in that event? What happened? Who really orchestrated Joseph coming to Egypt? It was God who did it. Does that not blow your mind? So, so this is so interesting, and I hope you're as interested as I am. <laughs> There's a doctrine in theology called concurrence. Have you heard that word before, concurrence? I concur, right? <laughs> concurrence. What it means is this. It's when the actions of God and the actions of man happen in the same event, at the same time. That's concurrence. The actions of God and the actions of men are happening in the same event. It's amazing. And that's what we're seeing here, right? That Joseph's brothers had a will of their own. We read that. They had their own purpose, right? They had their own plan to destroy this brother of theirs, Joseph. But by their actions, concurrently, God was working out his will. God was accomplishing his purpose, his secret plan for their deliverance. Is that not amazing? That what they meant for evil, God actually meant for good. Concurrence. Now, some of you may hear me, and you're hearing this, and you think, okay, well, if that's the case, then does that mean God is responsible for the evil? Right? We said that from the beginning, right? Does that mean if my actions are only, only in control or are being controlled by God anyways, does that mean He is the one 
who is committing the evil. So we need to be clear here. And I want you to remember the story. That's why I took so much time to go through the story with you. In that story, did God ever force the brothers to do evil? No. He never violated their will. He never tempted them to sin, just like we read in James. They chose to do evil out of the desires of their own heart. And you know this is true. You know why? Because it's the same with each one of us. When you sin, you may try to find excuses, right? You may try and say, oh, it was this person who caused me to sin or this circumstance, or, or you may even blame God. But in the depths of our conscience, we know that we have no one else to blame but ourselves. The brothers knew it too. It's interesting. I remember as I was studying this, one commentator brought up Adam and Eve. You know, when Adam sinned, what did he say to God? He said, the woman you gave me led me into this. Can't do that. It's not, even Adam knows it's true. It was his choice to sin. He was accountable for his sin, and so were these brothers. And so my point is, church, God does not create evil. He did not author it. He doesn't approve it, and he, de- he can't be blamed for it. And yet, here's the big yet, and yet, in a way that is beyond what our minds can fully fathom or fully know, he is still sovereign over it. He's still in control of it. Why do I say that? Because evil cannot occur in this world unless God allows it. Right? Because, because he's sovereign. He's in full control. There's nothing outside of his control. So, so if evil exists in our world, it's because God has allowed it according to his purpose and his plan. Um, the Westminster Confession, very helpful kind of um, statement of, of, of faith for, for Reformed Christians. It says, it's, it explains it this way. It says, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. If you want to quote, there it is. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Which means what? The same statement I made at the beginning, what our, what our non-Christian friends say all the time. Everything does happen for a reason. That's what it means. Everything happens for a reason, including evil. For it is ordained by God for some greater good. God would not have allowed evil. He wouldn't have ordained it if it did not lead to a greater good. And what is that greater good? Look back at the text, our main text for today, Genesis 50, verse 20. What's the, what's the greater good, Joseph tells us? In Genesis 50, verse 20, he says that many people should be kept alive. That many people should be kept alive. Now, Joseph is talking about physical life, right? He's talking about physical life here. The Israelites were saved from dying of starvation during a famine. But history would show us that what God meant here was more than just physical He meant eternal life. And I want to show you that. Remember Joseph's brother Judah? Remember Judah? What did he do? He's the one who suggested they should sell Joseph for 20 shekels, right? 20 shekels of silver. Judah meant evil against Joseph, but God 
meant that very evil to save Judah's life. Okay, please follow me, okay? To save Judah's life. So Judah survived this famine when otherwise he might have died. And because Judah survived, he had children. And his children had children, and their children had children. And one day, many generations down the line, in the line of King David himself, would come a faraway descendant of this very Judah called the Lion of Judah. The wisdom of God. who would save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, who like Joseph, would be betrayed, sold for 30 shekels of silver, Jesus Christ, who is also innocent, but in a much greater way, he was perfect, Joseph was still a sinner. He may not not have sinned with Potiphar's wife, but he was still a sinner. But Jesus Christ was innocent from, from start to finish, and yet was falsely accused. He was bound, and he was stripped of his robes. And he was crucified and left to die between two prisoners. You see, Joseph was a type. He was a, a foreshadow of, of Christ. And church, this doctrine of concurrence, the reason I'm getting so much, I'm just seeing the wisdom of God in this. This doctrine of concurrence, it's nowhere more clearly seen than when. We celebrated it a few weeks ago. Then Good Friday. Then Good Friday? <laughs> when the greatest evil man has ever committed crucifying the Son of God. And yet God meant that very act for good. He meant it for good. For the greatest good we could ever inherit and for the greatest glory to himself. I just want to show you a few verses as we close. In Acts chapter 4, in Jerusalem was gathered against Jesus. Look at this list. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, all of these players you remember from the crucifixion narrative. But what do they do? Verse 28. To do whatever your hand, whatever your plan had predestined to take place. That's concurrence. That's concurrence. One more verse, Acts 2.23. This Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of who? Of who? Of God. It was His will to crush Jesus. And yet, it was us who crucified Him. It says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So yes, church, it was our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. But what we meant for evil, God meant for good. 
so that by paying the price for our sins and raising Jesus from the dead, he could save sinners like you and me, he could judge sin for what it is, and one day he will destroy it in its entirety from the face of this earth. All because of the crucifixion, because of Good Friday. So as I conclude, um, I want to speak to two groups of people. First, if you do not know the Savior, if you don't know Jesus, if this is all new to you, I want to tell you that we will all have to give an account for our sin. There's no blame game. There's no blame shifting allowed. The, the, the sin is yours. Our evil, our blame, our responsibility remains with each one of us. So if you have not received forgiveness, if you have not been saved, if, you've, if you do not know this eternal good that God has for you, I'm imploring you today, please repent and, be, and, and believe. Repent and believe. What God meant for good, do not use it for evil. God has given us this time, a time where, where there's still a window of opportunity that we can be saved. It's a good thing God has given us this time, his patience. Don't use it for evil. And for those of you who do know Christ, I know many of you, you know Christ, you've walked with him. I want you to remember, this is the application for you, I want you to remember how Joseph was mistreated. I want you to remember this. That's why I took so much time to go through that narrative. You know the story, but I want you to remember. Because Joseph had every right to seek justice, didn't he? Think about that. Think about your own life. If someone has done this to you, you have your own story of the evil that's been committed against you. And you might be sitting there thinking, I have every right to get justice for what's happened to me. Right? for all the evil done against him, and yet Joseph knew that he was not in the place of God. He was not. And so he restrained his anger, he restrained his hurt, he relieved all his pain. And what helped him to relieve all the pain of the, of the, pain, of the evil that was done against him? What helped him? A realization that God was working all things for good. That's what helped him overcome. That's what helped him overcome. And church, that's true for you and I today too, isn't it? Romans 8.28, we know that all, for those who love God, all things work together. This is a verse that has been probably the one that we have overlooked the most because of how much we hear it. And we say it on almost like a Christian Hallmark card kind of verse. But I want you to realize that the all things there doesn't just include the good things in your life. It includes the evil committed against you. It includes the trial that you're facing right now. You're facing a hardship. We're all facing a hardship in this pandemic. Did you ever think that maybe this lockdown is meant for good? <laughs> because of God's will? To the praise of His glory? Because it's true. Every betrayal you've, you've faced, every injustice, every hurt, every pain that you're carrying today, even the suffering that you're having in your life, the things that you're like, how can this be glorifying to God? How can this be good? And yet, the, the Scripture still remains that all of those things are working for good. And I'm not just saying that um, 
as, as anyone in the world might tell you, hey, don't, don't worry, everything you know, happens for... I'm not just saying it that way. We have a reason to believe it. We have a basis to believe this is true. We have a foundation for why this is the case, that you are not going to be abandoned in a pit. If you feel like you're in the pit right now, like Joseph was in the pit, right? And he was thinking, okay, like all this has happened to me. God gave me this dream. I thought this is what my life was going to be, but here I am in this pit. And you may be in the pit right now, and you're thinking, how could there be any good coming from this? But I'm telling you, God does not abandon us in a pit. And God does not forget us in a prison. He doesn't do that. Men will do that. Friends will do that. The world might do that to you, but God doesn't do that. Because he is sovereign over the evil of man so that everything that happens to us happens for a reason, to the praise of his glory. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to sing a song uh, called Man of Sorrows. And the reason uh, we're singing this song is um, the story of Joseph is not ultimately about Joseph, folks. It's not about you thinking, oh, wow, Joseph was a really great guy. That's not what it was about. The story of Joseph was about Christ and what he would come to do. And so as we worship him, let's just pray and uh, prepare our hearts to, to, to set our minds on the, on the Savior. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for um, this passage, and I thank you that all the evil that we see around us there is a reason for it. That you have not just left us to chaos on this earth, but everything which happens, you ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And Lord, that gives us hope. That gives us confidence. That gives us faith. And as we look around us at a dying world, people who are, who are so down and depressed, especially in the midst of this difficult time, Lord, what hope do they have? All they can say is these nice sentiments, you know, everything will work out, but they don't have a basis for that. And yet here we are, and we have a reason to be hopeful. And so I pray that if anyone doesn't know you, they will come to know you this morning. They will love you, and they will see that, yes, you are working all things together for good. And for those of us who do know you, help us not to wallow in pity. Help us not to be so... Um, so um, uh, self-deprecating where we think, well, woe is me, woe is me. No. Help us, O oh God, to lift our eyes and see that you are sovereign over this circumstance because it's true. It's true. Thank you for the Savior. Thank you for Jesus coming to die for us. The hands of lawless men crucified by my sin, by our sin, and yet what we meant for evil, you meant for good. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.